All right, good Sunday evening to you, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to A Minor Detail, and I'm on blogtalkradio.com slash a minor detail. You can find me on the web at a minor detail.com. And today was a good day. I had the opportunity to interview an excellent candidate for Montgomery County Council. His name is Juan Dang, and he is going to tell you all about him in a pre-recorded interview. I don't have him live, but we did an interview today uh, in Gaithersburg, and uh, so you're going to learn a lot about who he is, his background, and from a personal side of the interview, it's one of the most touching interviews I have yet to do, and uh, I think you'll understand why later in the interview. So um, with that, I'm going to just go right into it. So it's about an hour and 10 minutes. You're going to learn as much as you thought you could about who candidate Dang is and what he stands for and why he's running. And look, there's a lot of these Montgomery County Council candidates that are currently running, and I'm going to do my level best to get these folks all on this show so I can present to you their positions on the issues. And look, I'm, I'm just one person doing this show, and it's, it takes a lot of time and effort, but that is my commitment to my community is to get out the facts. So with that, with no further ado, here is Juan Dang, um, Montgomery County Council Democratic candidate at large. All right. Welcome to a Minor Detail Radio. My name is Ryan Miner, and I am I have the distinct pleasure to be here in person with County Council at-large candidate Juan Dang. And before we get started, and I asked you this offline, I said, I said, Juan, how do you pronounce your name? Because I've heard it pronounced 20 different ways. What is the correct, correct pronunciation? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me on your show. Yes. Um, so my name is pronounced Juan Dang. And it's spelled H-O-A-N-D-A-N-G. As long as people recognize it on the ballot, right? Right. So you have decided to jump into this massive, crazy, at-large field for county council. So let's walk us through the steps of how you made that decision, how you arrived that you wanted to run for public office. And I know that you've been involved with um, your community for quite some time, and you have you have been involved uh, with lots of activism. So tell us how you got started and how you arrived at the decision to run for an at-large seat on the county council. Sure. Um, you know, I wanted to um, talk about, you know, I really got started in public service in this county. You know, uh, and we can talk about my background coming here as a Vietnamese refugee later. But yeah, well, let's... Why don't we start with that? I mean, uh, okay, and well, then we'll go right into it because you, of all the candidates, have one of the most interesting narratives. Um, and I, when I first met you, I had not known that your background is what it is. And I was blown away. I mean, you have lived the American dream. That is true and true. The definition of finding that freedom and basically escaping a country that was under siege at the time and then coming to America and, and living as we Americans live, and that is, you know, in freedom and, and having those individual liberties to be anything that you want. So could you actually start from that point? Yeah, happy to. You know, I'm, I'm sure many folks have uh, been watching the documentary, The Vietnam War by Ken Burns and Lynn Novak. Oh, yeah. 
And so it's definitely brought back a lot of memories. Um, so my family was one of the families that were actually evacuated out of South Vietnam uh, just about, I think, 48 hours before the country fell. And so we were very fortunate. Uh, we were flown out uh, in a C-130 transport plane. You know, with, I mean, we were pretty, pretty much packed in like cattle. And then we were flown to the Philippines and, you know, switched planes and went to Guam to stay in a refugee camp. And then we were, you know, got our paperwork to enter the U.S. And we were flown to Camp Pendleton Marine Base and lived. That was turned into a refugee camp for, I don't know, probably like 50,000 refugees. And we lived there for about six weeks until we um, got a sponsor who, was, who lived in Annapolis. So we were relocated to Annapolis. And this was in 1975, um, you know, right after the war. Now, how old were you at that time? Uh, I was eight years old at the time. Okay. But I can still remember it, you know, very vividly. And so I remember, uh, you know, I, I, was, I wasn't scared because I was uh, fortunate enough to have my, my whole family and extended family with me. But we, I remember, you know, in the refugee camp, we lived, there were 19 of us, and we all lived in this one tent huge army mash tent. You know, it had 10 cots on one side and 10 cots on the other side. And that's all we had. We, and we lived there for about six weeks. And then when we came to and relocated to Annapolis, you know, we all lived in a two bedroom apartment, you know, but how many, us, how many you know, of all 19 of us. Wow. And so, but that was actually, you know, a luxury to us, you know, have, if you've lived in a tent for six weeks, you know, with 19 people, moved to, you know, an apartment, it had indoor plumbing, everything was great. And, you know, we eventually, you know, got jobs and got back, uh, moved out into our own apartments. But then at, at the end of 1976, my family resettled in Montgomery County when I was 10 years old. And, you know, I remember we still struggled, you know, to survive. So we received a lot of government assistance. You know, I remember... You know, first of all, I'm a proud graduate of Montgomery County Public Schools. And so, but I remember being a free and reduced meal kid, uh, you know, so that I could get the proper nutrition, you know, in order to concentrate in school. And I remember I had great teachers who, you know, believed in me and they um, went the extra mile, you know, to ensure that I would succeed. So, you know, I was able to graduate from Vanderbilt University School of Engineering and also the University of Maryland School of Business, you know, with uh, two master's degrees, actually. So I'm, I'm very thankful for, you know, uh, Montgomery County Public Schools. And also it was in Montgomery County where, what I say, um, the flame of public service was ignited in me, you know, because um, as a Boy Scout, I remember, you know, we did volunteer work to help senior citizens. You were a Boy Scout? Yes. Okay, was so was I. Oh, great. I didn't um, I didn't make it to Eagle, and it was the greatest regret of my life. I did my Eagle Scout project. Oh, my goodness. And it, it just, it things have fallen. It, it's honestly one of the biggest regrets of my life. And I go back, and I, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's upsetting. But I, uh, I went to Philmont. Oh, wow. See, I didn't get to go to Philmont. Uh, you know, I, one well, of these I was, yeah, I mean, Philmont was expensive. That was the only thing. And I was, you know, like I said, we were still struggling. So 
but I had friends who went to Philmont and they raved about it. Um, but I mean, I'm, you know, I did become an Eagle Scout and, you know, I remember doing my Eagle Scout service projects where, you know, we had to, I had to conceptualize and develop and also recruited a lot of volunteers to help uh, build this community picnic area in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So it was experiences like that that uh, really empowered me to, you know, give back to the county. Uh, you know, the county has given so much to me and my family. And, you know, before that, I mean, we were on the receiving end. But, you know, as a Boy Scout, you really felt empowered to, you know, give back. It was great, you know, because, you know, you didn't have a lot of money and things like that, but you can give time. So, you know, since then, I've, you know, served um, the diverse communities for the past 35 years. And so, you know, since then, our population in Montgomery County has steadily increased, almost doubled yeah. in the past 40 years. And so now I see a greater need to serve the community at large because we have, you know, we have problems like traffic congestion, overcrowded schools. Um, there's a recent, you know, all the recent uh, rise in hate crimes and gang violence. So, you know, our county needs to change to meet the changing demands of our, you know, growing communities. And so we need leaders who can re-engineer, what I call re-engineer local government, you know, in order to provide better service, faster service, uh, without having to raise taxes again. Yeah. Well, that's, that's certainly a concern among especially a lot of people where I live in Up County. And you live, is it in Wheaton? Yes, okay. I live in Wheaton. So you live in Wheaton, and you have a perspective that is a little bit different from some of us folks who live here in, um, I live right down the road. We're in Gaithersburg, and I live in North Potomac, which is really Gaithersburg, but they came up with a fancy way to call it North Potomac, which we're fine with that, but it's really, techni it's really technically Gaithersburg. Um, and so your life experiences, Juan, when you came to this country as a refugee, um, and you your parents are your parents still with us? Yes, yes. Okay. They they still live in Montgomery County. So do you have brothers and sisters? I have two younger sisters. You have two younger sisters. And so when you came here and you mentioned earlier that you were on public the assistance public with assistance, yeah. yeah. And so that is a part of our community. We have many folks who have risen out of public assistance and have gone on to done extraordinary things. And there's I really hate that stigma that is attached to it. And it's one of those things that is very personal to me. I mean, I was fortunate enough when I grew up in Western Maryland, we, you know, I, I, we were able to, to, to not have public assistance because, but we were still struggling. We were a middle-class family and my parents started a business when they were, when I was three years old. And so, you know, your story is so unique to many Americans, especially here in Montgomery County, which is, I'm proud to say one of the most diverse places to live in the country. And you have a perspective that most people don't. You understand what's happening at the national level. And I think that's why what's happening at the national level, we talked about this, is so seemingly offensive to people, the way that this administration has been handling the refugee crisis. And, you know, especially with Syria, right. there are thousands of people who could come into our country and go on to do great things, and we're shutting the doors. And I, I don't want to get into the national issues, but it's, 
it's something that I'm very passionate about too. Sure. And I and I and I see the rise in anti-Muslims. I see the rise in anti-immigrant sentiments, even in places in this community. Yeah. Um, Anti-Semitic yeah. uh, sentiments. And so I, I see your candidacy as counteracting that, as somebody who has truly lived in the America, has lived the American dream, um, and can be a testament to what immigration means to our country. And when did you become a naturalized citizen? Um, my family and I became naturalized citizens uh, in 1982. Wow. So and what was exactly that process like? Well, it was for, for, at the time I was still a teenager. So really it was my parents that we had to apply. And then I think it was about, you know, maybe five years later, we were um, called in to the, um, I guess, the immigration authorities up in Baltimore and to, to be interviewed. You know, they, had, they were interviewed. Of course, you know, I, I was fine because I already had civic classes in, yeah. in school by that time. So, I, you know, I knew who the president was and all that. But I think my parents would actually turned out that they had, you know, to go through the more rigorous interview process. And then when they uh, were approved to become citizens, I mean, we already had green cards, you know, right. when we came here as, as refugees. Um, they, they, I don't know, I, I don't remember how that process worked, but... I knew we had green cards, and when we applied for citizenship, it was a lot easier. But what happened was I actually became uh, a citizen from the fact that my parents became, were, became citizens. You know, I, technically I was naturalized, but on my, I found out later, oh yeah, you know, it's just as if you, you had parents who um, were citizens, you were born um, in another country, and you were automatically a citizen. Right. They were already citizens, so... That was for minors. Yeah. Um, but it was very exciting. You know, we remember our neighbors. Uh, we had great neighbors, by the way, when we moved to Montgomery County. Where did, and when you moved to Montgomery County, where did you locate? Uh, we locate to Bethesda okay. in a neighborhood called Bannockburn. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, we had neighbors that not only, you know, made us feel welcome, but more importantly, they made us feel accepted. You know, it, it, and that's and that's a huge feeling because when you're coming from Vietnam and you know that you know um, the United States had been at war with Vietnam for a long time, you don't yeah. know how um, the people here are going to accept you. You know, but fortunately, you know, we we had neighbors who used to be Peace Corps volunteers and they were in the Foreign Service, so they were definitely aware of the whole situation. Did you have a when your parents were? Um when you and your family were brought to the United States, did they give you an option of where you wanted to locate, or did they say, okay, you're going to Annapolis, Maryland? Yeah, no, we didn't have an option. We, we had to go to where our sponsor was. Okay. And we were fortunate to have a sponsor in Annapolis, and he is actually sponsored, he and his family actually sponsored a lot of families. Uh, not all at the same time, but, you know, we learned over time that, you know, after he, you know, one family got back on their feet, he would sponsor another family. You came to the United States at such a rocky period in our American history. I mean, we Nixon had just resigned, and then Ford was president. There was a presidential election occurring, and here you are, a Vietnamese family, um, a few years after the Vietnam War ended, and you're in the mix of one of the most contentious points in American history. I find that fascinating. And I look today, and I think we're raising our kids in a very tumultuous uh, point in American history. Um, you know, Trump is president, and that's something that we have to 
endure, um, and I'll be nice this morning because <laughs> it's Sunday. Um, and I, I think about your experiences, and do you ever look back and say, holy cow, look what we have accomplished as, you know, as a family together. And that's what it's all about. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I look back and I'm grateful every day. You know, I never forget. It's tough. It's tough. It's really uh, tough. I, I, excuse I, me, sorry. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I never forgot right. Yeah. And I should mention that uh, when we became U.S. citizens, we had the option to change our name. You know, I, um, I actually have a Christian name, uh, Paul. I was thinking about changing yeah. officially to Paul, but I didn't. I decided after think much, having much, you know, given it serious thought, I decided to keep my name Juan. Because I never wanted to forget where I came from. Well, you know, I'm sure that your parents, um, are they still in, are they in Wheaton? No, they, uh, my mom lives in Silver Spring. Okay. Up, up uh, further north, Silver Spring. You know, Silver Spring is a huge area. Yeah. Uh, and my father actually uh, lives in Gaithersburg. They actually got divorced. Okay. Um, back, you know, in, I think back in the 80s, probably around the time when um, I was started college. So, I mean, it, it was a, you know, struggling time for us. And, uh, and so I think it took a toll on. Well, that's yeah, that's unfortunate, but, um, but I, I'm yeah. sure that they look at you as um, I'm sure they they look at you with such pride. Um, and going into when you graduated and you went off to college and you came back and uh, you started to get involved with community activism in in Montgomery County, and I want you to talk a little bit about that portion of your bio. What kind of what kind of activism have you participated in? And I'm, I'm a, I presume that those experiences have led you to where you are now, and that's putting your name on a ballot. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I got involved in activism actually while I was in college as well. You know, I, um, I remember, you know, one of the first uh, organizations that I joined in college was called Oxfam America. Mm -hmm. And it, Oxfam is an organization that wants to eliminate world hunger. And Oxfam America focused on actually eliminating hunger in America. So, you know, we organized fundraiser, you know, for the students there at the university. And that was, you know, I thought that was a great cause and a great experience. I also got involved um, in us. Uh, other, other, I helped, I actually was one of the founders of the Asian American Student Association at Vanderbilt. Um, so that we could have kind of a peer group for other Asian American students. Um, at that time, that's, this is back in the 80s, um, there wasn't an organization on campus that, you know, helped Asian American students get together and share their experiences. And there weren't that many of us. I mean, you know, uh, on a campus of probably about 3,000 students, you know, there was probably about, you know, 50 of us who were Asian Americans. And this was, you know, in um, so we needed 
to start an organization, and I was one of the co-founders. I'm very proud of. Now they've they've grown to such a huge organization. I mean, years later, they invited me to come back and speak to them, and you know, you could tell that they were so organized. Um, you know, I remember our first fundraiser event. You know, we held it in the little cafeteria. You know, and we probably were very happy. We had about I don't know, 70, 80 people attend. Uh, and this was just this little cafeteria in our school. And I think maybe about 20 years later, when I came back, you know, their annual fundraiser was held at like one of the most expensive hotels in Nashville. You know, the, wow. I don't know the Vanderbilt, you know, Plaza or something. Yeah, they and it was like a thousand people. So it was. I was. I was very. Um, Vanderbilt's a great school. Yeah, it was, it was a very good school. Um, it um, at the time I was looking at a school that offered, you know, biomedical engineering. Right. And I and Vanderbilt was actually one of the few schools that offered biomedical as a bachelor degree. Right. Of course, um, I started as a biomedical. Major, but then I eventually changed to electrical engineering major. Yeah, I changed my major a couple of times in college. So uh, okay. I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I started out as a music major, and I, I wanted to be a teacher, mm-hmm. and then I decided it would be in my best interest to be. I wanted to change the world in some immeasurable way, and I decided to become a political science major. <laughs> but I went back to school for a business degree. So uh, yeah, I mean, that's where I am. But you know, focusing. Specifically on Montgomery Activism. County, okay. yeah. um, you have been, um, you have a long line of accomplishments. Um, you have worked with your community, um, and you have done so much to um, to bring um, awareness to certain issues. So I want you to talk to that. I want you to speak sure. to that. Well, you know, one, one of the things I started when I came back here was I started uh, uh, the first Vietnamese American Boy Scout troop oh, in Maryland. Nice. Yeah, because there were uh, more refugees coming over, and by this time it was more orderly. Uh, we didn't have uh, boat people coming over now. The U.S. had started normalizing relations with Vietnam, and so they had this um, act called the Orderly Departure Act that um, that allowed former political prisoners um, and their families to be um, come over as political refugees. Um, and so there were a lot arriving, and probably around the early 90s. And so I, uh, you know, we decided that, you know, my friends and I decided, uh, other scouting friends, that we needed a sort of a scouting uh, trip to help these youth, um, you know, get oriented and become self-sufficient. And because we know they're going to go through challenges like we had. And, and we thought that scouting was a great way. And there's no better organization than the Boy Scouts of America to yeah. make that happen. And I, you know, you and I could talk for hours about our experiences as a Boy Scout. And I can tell you, I went on an international jamboree to Scotland. At oh, my point. goodness. Wow. Yeah, it was a blast. <laughs> and my scout leaders when I was a kid, and I went through Cub Scouts, you know, starting at age five or six. And I was a Tiger Cub and rose through Cub Scouts. It was one of the most important organizations. Um, because you learn the skills that you need in life right. and you appreciate your, your community, you understand loyalty, you understand reverence to your country. I mean, that's where I learned how to properly fold an American flag. Right. It's where I had some of my very best moments as in a brotherhood. Um, and I've learned skills and, and traits and, I, um, and, and how to, to communicate 
um, how to save lives, um, and it, it's just that experience for every young man growing up, I would encourage them to take advantage of it, and it's where you really learn civic responsibility. We, right. we learn the importance of voting. And my scoutmaster, and his name is Jack McCarter, and I saw him a couple years ago, well, maybe a year and a half ago, and he's about 91 years old. Wow. And I just love the man. I mean, he is an absolutely important. We all remember that, yep. that scoutmaster. Scout, yep, the great scoutmaster. Yeah, and we just remember <laughs> how much they touched our lives. And I, I'll tell this story all the time about uh, my adventures to you know, biking on the Siena Canal from to to going to Bermuda one year. Oh my yeah, we were we were a very active scouting troop, and so you know, Juan, I share that experience, and that is such an important function of every community. And I think that's great. You started a troop for Vietnam. Yeah, we started a troop, and now it's it's grown. You know, this was back in 1994, so wow. it's been over 20 years, and it's grown to you know I would say about 10 different units now. I mean, we we added the Girl Scouts as well, and you know, Cub Scouts. Um, Explorers, you know, explorers. You can also have uh, uh, girls yeah. join because it's an older, older group for like teenagers. But yeah, it's 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 grown, you know, as well. So I'm very, I'm very happy to, you know, that that has become successful. I also, uh, while when I was at Vanderbilt, um, I not only earned a degree in engineering, but I also received a, uh, earned my black belt in Taekwondo. Oh wow! So I'm a certified black belt, and so I started. Uh, also teaching a class, uh, started a taekwondo club, because also back in, I think, around 1990, uh, Congress passed what's called the Homecoming Act. And it was a law that recognized the children of American servicemen uh, when they were in Vietnam. And these were the children that were left behind when the U.S. Um, you know, uh, pulled out of Vietnam. And these children had been severely discriminated in Vietnam, because you know they were they were seen as the ch children of the enemy, and so they were uh, discriminated. They did not get much of an education. A lot of them struggled. So, uh, to the credit of the U.S. government, they finally recognized that hey, we need to do what's right and bring these kids over, and uh, and also their families. So, I also um, you know volunteered to help resettle um, uh, these families and. During this process, you know, and when I say volunteer to help them resettle, you know, basically helping the parents figure out, you know, the landscape. Like, okay, how do I um, help register my kids for school? Mm -hmm. You know, help answering questions about, you know, I get these notes from the school. What do they mean? Or, um, you know, some whatever concerns they had, that they had somebody that they could call and talk to and ask questions. In, in their own language, because I'm you know, bilingual. Actually, I, I also am fluent in French. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, you know, it was it was a good, um, actually, it was a great opportunity for, also for me, as a volunteer, to practice my Vietnamese, because, you know, having left at, at eight, and um, it, was, it was a chance, I mean, we spoke Vietnamese in the home, but at a very, you know, basic level, so... It was, it was really, uh, my Vietnamese improved significantly when I did the volunteer work. And that's one of the things I want to talk about in terms of when you do volunteering. It's two-way. You know, you benefit mm -hmm. from doing volunteering. It's not you just giving, but you have to look at it as you also gaining experience, you know, and, and improving yourself as well. So in this case, my, 
my Vietnamese language uh, improved tremendously. But while doing that, I recognized that a lot of these kids uh, were struggling in school because some of them had, you know, barely had a second grade, first grade, second grade, or maybe no education at all in Vietnam. And when they, they're here, they're forced to go, you know, into a lot of more teenagers by now, right? Because it's been, you know, over, it's probably been 16, 17 years. And so uh, them, and they have younger siblings who are not, who are not Amerasians, but, you know, the Amerasians, if you come here, you have to go to school. Um, and they're put, you know, at 16, 17, you're in high school. You're in 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade without any basic education. So they were failing out. You know, they were struggling, and they started getting into, you know, doing bad things. Yeah. You know, they, they stopped going to school and getting involved in gangs and stuff. So I felt that um, I should start a program, uh, this, which was this taekwondo club, and to help kids really, uh, first of all, have, give them something to do, you know, so that keep, keep them out of trouble. To do it after school? Yeah, it was an after school program because I was, you know, I was working as an engineer at the time for the weather service. And, and it, of course, you know, throughout my whole professional life, always uh, I did my volunteer, I reserved my after, after work time to do volunteer work and also on weekends you know so I kind of have a dual dual uh, career I would yeah. say um, but so I started this taekwondo club and you know we and it was in a neighborhood called Long Branch which was where a lot of the new families were resettled um, it was right near off of uh, Piney Branch Road mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry not, yeah near Pi uh, Long Branch Long mm -hmm. Branch Piney Branch near the Long Branch Library and anyways, I started this class to start teaching, and I had a lot of interest, you know, and so a lot of the Amerasian students joined the class. And interestingly, at the same time, there was a large growing Latino population mm -hmm. there at the same time. So, you know, I included them in my class. I offered, you know, the class to them as well. I mean, it wasn't exclusive to any group. It was just open to for whoever wanted to join. It was a free class, um, and the only thing they had to pay for was their uniform. Okay. Um, and I was able to get wholesale prices nice. for them. Yep. So, you know, it, it wasn't much. It was like $15. So tell me a little bit more about some of the political activism that you have done in Montgomery County. Oh, sure. Well, yes, I, I'm getting to that. Okay. So eventually I was, uh, I joined the board of an organization called, back then it was called the Maryland Vietnamese Mutual Association. Mm -hmm. And so I've served on that board, and I still do, for the past 20 years, over 20 years now, yeah, 1997, yeah, and so the, that organization, uh, now we're called Association of, Association of Vietnamese Americans, but we have helped resettle over 25,000 refugees and immigrants in wow. this country, and it's not just um, refugees and immigrants from um, Vietnam, but, you know, from also from Eastern Europe, from Africa, and Latin America, so... But, you know, through that experience, you know, we were able to have a much better idea of what the needs of refugees and immigrants are, and then trying to figure ways how we can meet those needs. You know, we now we now provide direct services. For example, we help um, those, um, mostly folks who are, have limited English proficiency, help them get access to health care, to um, 
some of the government assistance that you know that my family was um, able to access when we uh, first came. Um, also, you know, provide tutoring programs, after-school tutoring programs to uh, those who have limited income proficiency, so that you know they can get caught up. Right. Um, but through that process, I got involved. I was involved with um, what's called Leadership Montgomery, which okay. is leadership training. Um, uh, in for emerging leaders or for leaders in the county because I served as chair and president of that organization for about nine years. Wow. Yeah. So I was I was um, invited to you know apply for this uh, leadership and it was a great experience because it was like a, a nine month program and every month it was a, a different module and they would take you to basically understand Montgomery County how the government works. You know one month. You know, we would go to the uh, police and fire training academy to see how they train policemen, you know, and then we got a briefing on, you know. Did you ever do a ride-along? Uh, no, I don't think I did a ride-along. I did get a chance to, and I still have an opportunity to do that. Oh, yeah. You know, but uh, because of the time limit, I did get a chance to take a helicopter ride. Oh. Yeah, we took a helicopter ride, you know, and you know, with the, the traffic, the traffic helicopter. I've always wanted to do a ride-along with uh, a police officer, and I think the process is fairly simple, where you, you have to go down and fill out some waivers, and then they do a background check to make sure that everything is good to go, and then you spend an entire shift with a with a county police officer. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I think it is, it, I guess the reason it was, yeah, you can, I think any citizens can go through that yeah. process, so. At that time, I said, okay, I think I'll focus on the helicopter ride because I don't think anybody can just go get a help on the helicopter yeah, ride at the time. Um, but, you know, we got to go, uh, we got a briefing, you know, from the police chief, and then we, and then there was a module on education. Mm -hmm. So we learned about Montgomery County Public Schools, and there was a module on, you know, community planning. We got uh, a briefing from experts from the Department of Park and Planning uh, Department, and I remember the the one uh, module that really stuck in my mind was the Annapolis module, because we got briefing uh, a local government, county government as well, and and also they took us to Annapolis to the state legislature, and uh, we got a briefing about you know what the state legislature does, and you know as a legislature, uh, you know you. There are all these uh, different interests, right? They're affected. But I remember that I say, but, you know, the most important people that we want to hear from are our constituents. Right. You know, we have meetings with lobbyists all day, but our most rewarding time is when we talk to constituents. And, you know, I never forgot that. I said, wow, that's great because I never knew that. I thought, like, you know, these lobbyists and their, you know, expensive suits were, you know, were the most important people. But the legislature made it very clear that, you know, we were the most, you know, the, their constituents and their uh, the residents were their were the most important people to them. So a few years later, there was a bill. I learned that there was a bill that was introduced um, the, to require uh, nail salon workers to have to get additional continuing education. Mm -hmm. um, I guess in order to to you know renew their licenses. And I heard about it because um, one of the um, 
Delegate Susan Lee at the time uh, in the legislature, and she was, you know, the first uh, now state senator Susan. Lee. Now state senator right. Susan Lee, yeah. But at that time, it was Delegate Susan Lee, and she had, you know, brought it to my attention. And having been um, involved in the community, I knew that this would really affect our community because the Vietnamese American community here, um, I estimate about half of the working adults work in the nail salon cosmetology industry. Is that right? Yeah, about about half of the working adults. That's that's uh, the, the estimate. So is there is there a re? I mean, what's what? Why? Well, yeah, that that's that's a great question. I think um, it was because I you know when a lot of refugees were coming over, there was a woman in California. Um, I forget her name, but she had an idea of. How, because nobody had, everybody was struggling to find jobs because, right. you know, you know they had degrees. I mean, there we had people who had, you know, medical degrees and professional degrees, but they, they had struggled to find jobs because their degrees were not recognized, you know, here in the U.S. So they either had to spend, you know, go to school again, and, and, and a number did. You know, they, they started over, you know, their bachelor's degree, even though they were in their 30s or whatever. They went to school. Um, and earn. But for, for the most most of the folks, um, especially those who are coming over later um, as boat people, you know, they didn't necessarily have the professional background. And this woman realized, oh, hey, one way is why don't we train them uh, to become nail technicians or, or cosmetology, like barbers, mm -hmm. you know, doing hair and things like that. And so she trained a number of them. And it turned out that it was very successful, you know, that and they were about. Uh, uh, they were able to get a lot of folks into that industry in California, where where it's the largest uh, community of Vietnamese Americans live. I mean, right now I think it's probably like half a million in Southern California. Wow. Uh, well, I'm sorry, Northern and Southern, but you know, probably a quarter million in Southern. But in Montgomery County, the Asian population here, this community, it's it's pretty large, right? Yes. It is large. Um, Vietnamese Americans here, probably in Montgomery County, I think it's probably around 10,000, mm -hmm. uh, according to the last census. So Do you have a lot of interactions within the, that community? Um, yes. Well, I mean, and that's one of, one of the reasons was because of this cosmetology bill. Because a lot of our clients, you know, in the uh, also work in the cosmetology industry, you know, and so they have limited English proficiency. So when you know we heard about this bill introduced and having and I had by that time I had gone to Annapolis several times to testify on different bills, you know that that were related to uh, my community and not just the Vietnamese community but the Asian American mm -hmm. community and so and and other communities as well, um, you know bills that you know might adversely affect our community. Me as the chair and president of this organization felt that I had to go and go testify. So I had a lot of experience testifying. So I I felt that the this cosmetology community needed to know about this bill because they probably have no idea. And so we called a town kind of a town hall meeting um, at a local church. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we it was like we didn't have much time because it was like oh my gosh, there's the hearing date. You know, it's going to be in in a week. So we, we organized the meeting. It was like three, three days notice. And we had, I think, over 100 people show up. 
and I've never seen anything like it because these are the cons you know, male technicians, cosmetologists who really don't get involved in activism. Mm -hmm. But they were very concerned because it, it affected their livelihood. And so I explained to them what the bill was requiring, and I told them, well, you know, we have, I mean, you have three choices, right? One, uh, you can go testify against this bill, okay, if you don't, you know, agree with it. Two, you can testify for the bill mm -hmm. if you think that it's a good idea. And three, you can do nothing at all and let it take its course, whichever way. So after, you know, not, not much consideration, they wanted to go testify against the bill. So I said, okay, fine. You know, I have a lot of experience testifying. I can teach you how to do that. You don't have to be an expert at anything. You know, you just have to tell what's, you know, tell the story from your heart. You know, and I think in the legislatures, they want to hear from us. They want to hear uh, input from the community. So, so I help them understand that, you know, this is not, they were not trying to, um, you know, they were not, the, the legislators are their representative, you know, not, not somebody who's going to um, um, hold it against them, you know, because a lot of them are very fearful sometimes to go and testify in public. I'm sure. It's intimidating. Yeah, it's intimidating. I've done it, and it's um, even as someone who has a, a, you know, a radio podcast and uh, has spoken in public before, um, it's still a fear. You know, it's like everybody's fear to speak in public, and it's true. Every time you get up in front of a crowd, there's a little nervousness there, and it's, it's hard. Oh, yeah. Especially in front of legislators. Well, and especially if you have limited English proficiency. Right. You know, so we, we coached them. I mean, it was we only we had a very short amount of time. It was maybe within, you know, three or four days. But uh, we were able to organize about 20 of us um, to go and form a coalition with um, Latino nail salon workers and Korean American nail salon workers were all all concerned about this bill, and so we went down, and we had uh, me. I was going to testify on behalf of the Association of Vietnamese Americans. We had uh, two, uh, one another person who was going to testify, uh, two other people who were going to testify on behalf of Vietnamese American cosmetologists. Mm -hmm. You know, and then. So when they testified, you know, it was all five of us sitting in front, you know, we went one by one, but I could tell, I mean, they were shaking. They yeah. were like, and you can hear it in their voice. And, and, and the legislators could tell that they could, you know, really struggling with English, but they really appreciated the fact that these folks were felt so passionate about, you know, or, or so concerned about this bill that they really had to overcome whatever fears they had to come and communicate legislatures you know that's a that's, that's a that's a, an amazing story and it and it's sort of the other I wanted to tell you I was at the minimum wage hearing the other evening I think it was on Tuesday evening Tuesday, yes. before the county and they had a public hearing and there was a young african-american male who came and spoke in favor of the, the minimum wage and council member Craig Rice um, his follow-up comments um, wasn't necessarily about the policy or the advocacy in favor of um, the, the minimum wage hike, but rather that somebody from a young male from the African American community took time to come and do that. And that was a 
um, that was a beacon of light for uh, young African-American males, especially in our community, that care about their, their community. And Craig Rice, you know, he's the only African-American sitting on our county council at this time. That was important to him, and that was a touching moment. And if you go back and watch the video, um, you'll see how important that was to him. And that's true, because mm -hmm. so many people in Montgomery County, um, you know, as a white guy like me, as a, an Asian-American like yourself, and many other people, um, it, it's, it's not necessarily about our ethnicity or background. It's that we all want to come together for a better community with, right. with our schools, with our transportation, um, with our infrastructure. And so you have an interesting platform, Juan, and I want to go, I want to talk a little bit about what is it that you want to accomplish as a county council member? And I should, I always ask candidates this question, and I say, why in God's name would you ever want to be an elected official at this point in American history? And I'm like, so I look at candidates right in the face and say, what the hell do you want to become an elected official for right now? Sure. And you have a, a very powerful and compelling narrative, but as a councilman, when you get elected, sure. what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? Right. Well, that's a great question. Um, so if elected, you know, my top three priorities would be one, to reduce traffic congestion. Mm, we need it. Yes. Two is to ensure that our kids are prepared for the 21st century workforce. Mm -hmm. And three, we want to ensure that Montgomery County remains, uh, provides a safe and welcoming environment, all residents, mm -hmm. especially in light of the rise in hate crimes and violence. So uh, reducing traffic congestion is a huge issue for everybody in the county. Even if you take public transit, right. you know, you still have to get from, you know, your home to the metro or um, or if you get on the bus, you, the bus still has to go down the rush hour traffic or or, um, uh, or whatever traffic that you you're, uh, have to go through during even non-rush hour traffic has, has gotten worse. Oh, yeah. Sunday yeah. afternoons, Saturday afternoons. I, had, I went to uh, Dunkirk down in Calvert County yesterday, and I was mm -hmm. coming back on the Beltway, and we were still stopped. And I'm thinking, why? What yeah. is going on? Why are why am I stopped at 3:30 on a Saturday afternoon right. when traffic is relatively or should be rather lighter? Right. And I'm thinking we've got to do something. Right. And so I'm I'm putting all my trust into smart guys like you mm -hmm. to figure out these important solutions, and it's going to take a concerted effort with state officials, with yes. um, county officials, and with the federal government, and so, Governor Hogan released a plan um, right. last two weeks ago now yes. um, about his I-270. You, right. Can you share some thoughts on that? Sure, I'm happy to. Yeah, so, you know, we definitely need to take a holistic approach to this, to this problem. Not, you know, there's not going to be any one solution that's going to fix the traffic congestion. Mm -hmm. So we have to use a multi-pronged approach. And widening 270 is one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, north, yeah, and, and um, you know, it's going to be north of Germantown because that up there, you know, it goes from like six lanes down bottleneck. to two lanes or something. Yeah, so that's why you have the bottleneck yeah. that that backs the traffic all the way down to the Beltway uh, <laughs> during rush hour. So that needs to be you know widened, and so I'm happy to see that. And of course, the same thing in 495. You know, 495 was probably built 
you know, for half the capacity that it's holding now. So that's why we have this uh, horrible uh, traffic during rush hour. And so winding 495 is also important. Now, one of the things that I haven't really seen, it's not very clear, is whether he is also going to try to widen the American Legion Bridge. Yeah. Because that's a bottleneck. I mean, if you widen 495 without widening the bridge, you're still going to experience that bottleneck mm -hmm. in that area. And I wanted to say that several council members are opposed to building a second bridge. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with that because the need right now is, you know, using, I mean, money, if you have the funds, you should use that to expand the American Legion Bridge where, you know, it's, it's overused at this point, over capacity. Uh, right now, we're not sure. I mean, actually, I think that there, there have been studies that showed uh, a second bridge would not get that much traffic, so it's not a high priority right now. I mean, I don't know in the future. You know, things always change over time with, you know, growing population and, and growing priorities. But right now, the priority is the American Legion Bridge, which is we have a huge bottleneck there. I mean, we know, you know, probably thousands, if not tens of thousands uh, of cars go through there every day. Yeah, I mean, so, if I want to go to the GW Parkway, mm -hmm. I mean, that's to, in, from my house in North Potomac and to downtown D.C., it shouldn't take longer than an hour to get there. But when you're in rush hour traffic, it's a mess. I mean, it's like oh, yeah. you you think of every possible way to go back routes. You think of every possible, you know, should I take the metro? And you're there timing it. So, you know, it's almost a science. You know, if I leave my house and it takes me 10 minutes to get to Shady Grove Metro Station, and with parking, you know, I could be there in 15 minutes, and then from Shady Grove to um, Farragut North or to, uh, go to, to Capital South, you're like, okay, that's going to take me, you know, 48 minutes if the trains are working, if they're on time, if they're, you know, God forbid they're not broken. But if we got a problem in yep. this community and it's causing problems for people who live up in Western Maryland who have jobs down in D.C., um, I don't know if you've ever taken the MARC train, um, but a lot of my friends do. They catch it. I was, I still, most of my family are in Hagerstown. They'll go down to Point of Rocks or in Brunswick and catch the bark train into Union Station. And that's been very successful. Sometimes it breaks down. But, you know, there's, there's all these different infrastructure projects that are in the works now. And I think that's one of the number one council, council responsibilities to look at. Now, there's a project up in Car Clarksburg, the M83. Yes. So that's, a, that's yielded some controversy. Sure. And some people are for it. Some people are against it. What is your position on that? Well, I am in favor okay. of M83, you know, and, and you're talking about basically extending the Mid-County Highway. Yeah, that's right. You know, to meet up uh, north. And, and, and here's, and, and, you know, M83 has been in the master plan since the 1960s. Sure. And when uh, we developed Clarksburg, it was promised to the residents that, yes, M83 would be built to you know, make sure that the traffic congestion doesn't get worse because you're adding, you know, a lot more. When you build a development, you're going to be adding a lot more residents, a lot more cars. And so they said, okay, well, you know, go ahead. They gave the permission to build the developments, but they never followed through with building M83. And that's now that's why we have horrible traffic congestion that uh, we have up there now. And so, Especially with the, the new outlets. 
Yes, and that yeah, and now you have the the the, the outlets. And that's even <laughs> now it's even worse. Yeah, we could talk an hour about that infrastructure problem. Right, and so I think um, that's not part of Governor Hogan's transportation plan, but I'm hoping that you know perhaps we can uh, um, add it in. At, at some point, but you know, there's other uh, other ways to do it. You know, we can also ask the state to um, put together a bond bill to fund it. You know, and and put the bond bill against like future toll yeah. uh, toll revenues. We can put a toll in there. You know, so that just kind of like the ICC. So toll roads. Yes. And yes. toll roads. Another solution is bus rapid transit. Yes. Uh, now we mentioned bus rapid transit, so. You can also add a, uh, a dedicated lane for bus rapid transit if you build M83. Yes. Right? So it encourage people to take uh, public transit. And, of course, that's that's the other uh, part of the equation. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the MART train, you know, and Metro is also part of the solution. You know, we need to add more train yep. service and more bus service. And even, you know, uh, things like bike lanes yep. to encourage people, you know, to... Um, designated uh, bike lanes. Yes, designated bike lanes. Yes, because, because um, undesignated bike riders often cause problems for three thousand pound car motorists. So uh, that yeah. would be that would be a plus, right? And, and, you know, in my community, um, people are much less inclined to use bikes as a as a method of transportation. But I can tell you that if a designated lane suddenly appeared in the next couple of years, I might be more inclined to head down Dufif Mill, take. The bike, uh, take the bike lane all the way down to West Goody, and then not only get my exercise in, but I would feel as a more accomplished human being <laughs> by exercising for once in a day because it's great. I love riding my bike anywhere you go, um, and it's just creating that, creating that opportunity for yes. people to use it. Right, and and it's very and it, if you don't have dedicated bike lanes, it's, it's dangerous yeah. for bike riders. I mean, it's because it's quiet. I mean, it's not like you're riding a Harley. Mm -hmm. You know, and the cars know where you are. You know, sometimes drivers are distracted. You know, they they you know are listening to things on the radio or doing other things that they shouldn't be doing, and they could used to be cut. You know, making a right turn real quick without checking, and you know, and you have to cross over yeah. an, an undedicated bike lane. It is very dangerous. So, let me ask you about the Purple Line. Yeah. Um, the Purple Line is obviously on the minds of most Montgomery County residents. It's on the minds of the it's on the mind of the governor, and he has decided that they're going to come through with the funding. And while they took some time to make that decision, um, there's some there's some positives, and then folks in Chevy Chase are complaining about some of the negatives. And I think there's some valid criticisms on both sides, and it was in litigation for some time. What's your position on our Purple Line? Sure. Um, so the Purple Line is a very difficult subject, actually. You know, on the one hand, you're increasing um, the uh, the uh, metro, mm -hmm. metro line to connect, to connect uh, Bethesda to uh, Prince George's County. Right. And, and it's, uh, it's east-west, east-west connection. So the advantage is, you know, if you're travel, if you want to go from Bethesda to say um, Greenbelt or, or whatever, you don't have to take the red line all the way down to DC and then all the way back up. You know, you can, you know, cut across. Just kind of like what the ITC did uh, for, you know, drivers. You know, I, and and you know, I love the ITC. Now it's built. I love it. You know, because having to travel 
from uh, you know up near Baltimore area, you can just cut across to get to Gaithersburg. Oh yeah. And uh, you save. I mean, during rush hour, I'm sure you save at least half an hour, 45 minutes. We love going to Baltimore City, um, especially Little Italy. Uh-huh. And, yeah. So you know, from our house, we just Gaithersburg. Yeah, yeah. we hit down to the Sandbank Highway. And then it takes us right onto the ICC. We hit 95. We go up 95, and then you're in Baltimore City in 45 minutes. Sure. It's 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 great. Yeah, and, and um, by the way, uh, speaking of the ICC, you know, M83 yeah. would also help connect traffic to the ICC because you know you come up down I83, Mid County Highway, you come down um, Long Shady Grove Road, and mm-hmm. you can catch the ICC right there. So it definitely would connect those folks up in Clarksburg. You know, to the ICC much better. Yeah. Um, but back to the Purple Line. You know, so that's the advantage of the Purple Line, and also, you know, it'll increase, um, it'll stimulate economic development. Right? We hope so. Yeah, because it'll create jobs. You know, to build it, and also, uh, it'll attract businesses to you know set up business along along those you know those routes or those stops, because they see that hey, the county is investing mm-hmm. in infrastructure. And so if I have to invest in a business, I know that that's not going to go away. You know, the, 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 this, this transportation route is not going to go away, you know, because if it was a bus route, yeah, you can always reroute the bus. Right. If you're building a light rail, it's, it's there to stay for a long time. So it's worth your investment, you know, to have relocate your business there. And now, of course, the problem I think I see with the Purple Line is that it's actually taken away the uh, the trail, yeah. the bike, the, the trail that people use, right? We're and, talking about, and that's a valid point. They're good. they're discouraged by that. Yeah, folks. I are. mean, yeah, you're you're instead of um, you're you're taking away an option, right? Because a lot of people use that the, the trail, Capitol Crescent Trail, mm-hmm. um, to bike to work or to you know use it as exercise or walking. I mean, it's it's been a great uh, uh, route. I think it's it's one of the most used trails it is. in correct. Montgomery County. Yep. And so I can understand why the residents are upset about that. You know, if perhaps if they had um, if they had uh, routed the Purple Line, you know, without having to take away the trail, there would have been I think a lot less controversy. Yeah. You know, but you know, but I was not involved in the planning for that. I, you know, uh, that decision was made uh, a long time ago, and I think it's, I mean, it started about well, 30 years ago. And it looks like it's moving forward. And yeah. And so I, I think that um, the county council, I don't want to call it a struggle, but they're going to have to really hear the Chevy Chase residents. Yes. And that's part of your job. And, right. you know, Juan, you're a great listener. And when we first sat down and talked, you you heard our concerns. And another one of our concerns, um, Kim and I, um, was education, and we talked quite a bit about that. And so last year or two years ago, the county council, they, the Board of Education came to the county council and said, we need $90 million above maintenance of effort. And that was a, that's a, that's a lot of money. And so, and what happened? They had to raise taxes. Nobody's happy about that tax increase. That property tax increase of 8.89% or so, um, that's that's going to hit families. It's going to be hard, and we understand that education is the one of the top priorities for this council, for our 
for our Board of Education. Our two kids are in public schools in Montgomery County. We love it. They're going to they're gonna go to Wooten, and we, we could not be more thrilled because we know that they are going to be ready to be either college or career ready, all right? But the taxpayers are asking, what could we do to offset some of those costs? Because it's still coming out of our pockets. And George Leventhal did a great job of explaining why they had to do it. And it's not always the best way to tell constituents, I'm sorry, I have to raise taxes. I have to ask you for more money. But of course, education being that priority in this community, we have some of the best schools in the country. Um, what is your priorities for our education system in Montgomery? Sure. Well, so as I mentioned before, you know, we need to ensure that our children, our kids, are prepared for the 21st century workforce. Right. Okay. So one of the first things is we need to invest in pre-K for all children. That's universal pre-K. Yeah, universal pre-K or okay. pre-K for all. Um, you know, because studies, studies have shown that, you know, the the opportunity gap or achievement gap uh, start starts as early as four years old. Mm -hmm. So if we can, you know, get those kids, you know, uh, into the schools and get the quality education, at, you know, at that age, then there's less likely of a hood, uh, of a less likely uh, of a chance that they will be falling behind 